But our duty today is to our country and our children and our Constitution. We are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was yet another week in which we were drawn into the sick orbit of the former president. Donald Trump dominated the news in all three branches of government, but the marquee event of the week was surely the latest and perhaps last public hearing of the January 6th committee. The hearing had a retrospective feel that put into relief the committee's mammoth accomplishments in presenting a detailed depiction of a series of schemes to subvert the peaceful transition of power for the first time in the country's history, culminating, of course, in the violent melee on January 6th itself. All nine members of the committee participated in the proceedings, which combined a reprise of its greatest hits with new, startling evidence. That new evidence included a wealth of emails and other documents from the Secret Service, setting out with bone-chilling specificity the literally murderous plans of the rioters and their conviction that they were answering the president's call. The hearing culminated in the committee's own October surprise, a unanimous decision to subpoena Trump to testify. Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney declared the move was necessary to provide accountability, even as most observers think it unlikely that Trump will ever raise his right hand. To help us figure out where we stand after the ninth and possibly last hearing of the January 6th committee, we are really fortunate to call on the expertise of some of the most knowledgeable and sophisticated observers bar none in the country. And they are Carol Lenig, a national investigative reporter at the Washington Post, focused on the White House and government accountability and an on-air contributor to MSNBC. She is the author of 2021's Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, and the co-author of two books with her colleague Phil Rucker, including I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Carol won a Pulitzer Prize in 2015 for her work on security failures and misconduct inside the Secret Service, and also shared the Pulitzer for revealing the U.S. government's secret broad surveillance program in 2014. She is back after a summer respite from the podcast. Carol, really a great pleasure to welcome you back. Thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Andrew Weissman a professor of practice with the Center on the Administration of Criminal Law at NYU Law School, and like Carol, an on-air contributor to MSNBC. He served, of course, as a lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel's office, one of only several leadership roles he held in the department, all of which succeeded a storied career as a line prosecutor. His book on his somewhat bruising experience with the Mueller probe is entitled Where the Law Ends, Inside the Mueller Investigation, 
Andrew Weissman, always a pleasure to welcome you back on Talking Feds. Nice to be back. And finally, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She served in the House since 1995, representing California's 19th District. She currently serves, of course, on the January 6th Committee, as well as the House Judiciary Committee. A former immigration attorney, she is widely recognized as a champion for immigration reform and is the chair of the Subcommittee on Immigration. The Congresswoman is also the chair of both the Committee on House Administration and the California Democratic Congressional Delegation, and a very, 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 very busy member of Congress over these last couple days. So we're so pleased and gratified that you could take some of your very limited time to be with us today. Thank you so much for joining Congresswoman Lofgren. Happy to be here. Let's start, of course, with the hearing, but at the broadest level of what the committee was attempting to do, and if I can be so cheeky, if it succeeded, you know, it had the feel of a kind of finale hearing. That doesn't mean it was, but rather than a couple members presenting a whole new chapter, there was a fair bit of summation, though with several pieces of important new evidence. Can I start with you, Congresswoman, to just give your thoughts about the goal you had or the committee had for the hearing going in? And did you assume whether or not it turns out this way or not, that it would be the last public hearing in front of the American people? Well, we don't know when the last hearing will be, but I strongly suspect this is the last for the, you know, at least next several weeks. Our goal all along has been to unfold the truth for the American people, as well as to come up with recommendations. And obviously, this hearing was about the truth, not just our recommendations. Some of it was a recap because not every person was able to watch all the other hearings, but also we had new information about some of those themes. I would say overall, it's very clear that the former president was at the center of this plot to overturn the election. And he knew in advance that he wasn't going to accept the results. He had various plans and ways to overturn the election, culminating in the last effort, which was to use a violent armed mob to disrupt the actual transfer of power and counting of the votes. So he was at the beginning. He was in the middle of all of it. I think we had the evidence to prove that. And it was important that people know that and that we not allow our democratic election system to be replaced with autocracy. It did feel to me that the broad narrative that began in the first hearing with the melee and officers testifying and being hurt, continually the aperture closed down, 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 down until it was really a relentless and tight focus on the former president as the moving actor. Andrew or Carol, I wonder what you thought about the format here where everybody spoke some, the mix of old and new, and whether it held attention in the way that the previous kind of series of blockbuster hearings have. I'd like to go first just to step back to, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Watergate hearings. And I think that this set of hearings is going to go down in history, or at least I hope it does, in a similar vein. It is the single 
most informative set of hearings that I've listened to and been aware of since the Watergate hearings. I think that it has changed a lot of minds. It made me think about what happened in a much more holistic way. And my thinking changed. I think it clearly changed the way the department was thinking about this and gave cover and license to them to be thinking about it differently. I thought it, in many ways it was sort of the anti-Muller report. I mean, they were, obviously there were different strictures on Robert Mueller than in a congressional hearing, but I thought making us see what was before us in a new way and underscoring it and developing evidence. It was such a singular event. And Congressman Lofgren, I just, my hat's off to you. I think it's so hard to do this. And I just thought it is a service to the country as well as to the Department of Justice. The only analogy I have is something that's as important is the Watergate hearings. Can I just follow up for one second before, Carol, you come in? You say it clearly, you think, changed the mindset of DOJ. Why is that clear, do you think? Well, I have a very strong view as to how I think the department was looking at this matter. And I think in some ways, to be fair, if I even think about my own way of thinking about this, I really stressed looking at this in terms of all of the facets. It's sort of in some ways a misnomer that it's called the January 6th hearings, because that's just the culmination of what the Congresswoman and her colleagues had laid out in terms of an entire plan and scheme that had series of plans and schemes, right? right, That had many, many different aspects to it, whether it's at the state level, whether it's involving the vice president, whether it involves the Department of Justice. And this was sort of the denouement of the January 6th events. And I think that that is not how the department was thinking about it. I think left to their own devices. I think they would have been happy to not have to deal with this. I think that this made it so front and center and so clear. And credit to Merrick Garland, I think, because I think if you were talking to him, he would say it did change the way he was thinking about this. And that as well as they're doing it, as you can't just go after the people who were the foot soldiers to use Congresswoman Cheney's nomenclature that you the foot soldiers are not the end all and be all when you have somebody leading an insurrection. And I do think that really changed and gave license to that change because there was so much evidence and now so much support for looking at this in a different light. And I totally credit the committee and its work and its uncovering evidence and obviously a lot of courageous witnesses who came forward in terms of setting that new frame of reference for how to think about what had just happened. I just want to toss in now and say, I agree with almost everything Andrew said. There are a few sort of opinions that I can't stray into, but I couldn't agree more with him based on reporting that this changed the Department of Justice's view. I remember calling sources without specifying who, where, what, after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. And that was a barn burner for them. They were stunned, as I was, right? And that brings me to my other response to your question, Harry, is 
I think as a journalist, what's my standard? What's new? What am I going to learn here? And so many times in a hearing, I feel as though many congressional hearings, I feel as if I'm hearing things I knew for a long, long time. In this instance, the committee, this is an area I'm an expert in, right? I interviewed most of the people that were actually either secretly behind closed doors or actually videotaped in in testimony. I interviewed those people for books about Donald Trump, especially the final year. And I was blown away by what the committee had gotten. In addition to what I had gotten out of them, the candor with which these people spoke, I was also struck by the importance of saying out loud what I'd already reported, having people say out loud what people had said privately to me. There's something different, right? The first hearing was such a stunner because I could write a story that said as the lead, X number of Trump aides and administration officials said blank because They did. They told the committee that. And that's a huge service to the public to let them know that it's not just some reporter writing a book or writing a newspaper story, but it's sworn testimony of those individuals. And I found out a lot of new things from the committee, and I pride myself on knowing this material so well. But some of the new shockers were extensive evidence that Donald Trump knew he lost the election. That was one of my central questions interviewing him. Did he acknowledge, did he realize, or was he BSing? He told multiple allies he had lost. Another stunner was while police were being transported to hospitals, Donald Trump was still agitating to go to a melee in progress. He knew exactly what was happening there, had been multiply briefed, on the danger there, and he still wanted to go, what is that for? What is the possible purpose? And I'm sorry, one last thing before I forget. I sometimes think like a prosecutor because I have interviewed so many. I'm not, I'm not. (laughs) However they think, right? I mean, I just feel like they've gotten inside the wormy holes of my brain. And I can't tell you how striking, Congresswoman, the information you guys revealed about intent, what was going on inside Donald Trump's brain. And that intent part is something, no doubt, the Department of Justice has been very wary of whether or not they'd get there. And you gave them a lot of big leads. Let me just add a couple things. And, you know, your answer, Carol, puts it perfectly in mind. I remember the just as the first hearing, the curtain was being drawn. What was it going to be? Would they get there, as you say, particularly on intent, which I think we took to be, if not inscrutable, just not enough for the DOJ or for the country to assume with confidence. And we now do assume it with confidence. I'm also old enough to remember the Watergate hearings, and I want to draw a couple contrasts between two historic events. The first is that the committee, in contrast to Watergate, had to really push uphill against a lot of non-cooperation and a new culture in which people now think they can disregard congressional commands with impunity. At least many key actors did, and the committee, I thought, was brilliantly strategic in taking what it could get, picking its fights, etc. But second, 
I think we remember Watergate for its really, and the congresswoman better, I, I think you were a staffer on it, yeah, but for its really sort of crystalline moments of revelation about the tapes, about the cancer on the presidency, but they were sort of rambling around and hit gold a few times. This committee, by contrast, put together a huge narrative with beautiful sort of Choreography is too trivial a word, but just in terms of assembling a comprehensive story in a way that was beyond the brief of the Watergate committee, I think it's really, in that sense, the most successful congressional hearing in history. Well, let me just say this in terms of the Watergate. I mean, there were two elements. There was the Senate hearings, Mm -hmm. and that was the revelation of the tapes and, and the like. On the House side, I wasn't on the committee staff. I was on the staff of a member of the committee. Okay. But there was, you know, an investigation that was important, but it was nothing compared to this investigation because they had a prosecutor and they had a Department of Justice that was handing them information. That never happened here. The Department of Justice has given us zero. <laughs> and... Actually, I'm not complaining because it's not their job to give us information. So every single piece of information that we got, we got. And again, with recalcitrant witnesses, I do think there's still some things we need to know from the former president. We know he always intended to overthrow the government. He never intended to comply with the election results. We know of the various schemes he tried towards that end. One question I have, after he assembled the mob, knew they were armed with assault weapons, sent them off to the Capitol, we know, and we couldn't provide all the information, he fully intended to go to the Capitol, not only because of the testimony in his vehicle, but the Secret Service actually went so far as to assign teams for the route and to try and secure the route and to identify the staff that would do it. I mean, and they kept the the staff waiting. They said in a couple of hours, what did he plan to do at the Capitol? That's one thing I'd like to know. And by the way, I just want to say there had been some back and forth, Cassidy Hutchinson versus Dan Ornano, not a very fair fight for starters. But that, I think, after yesterday proved to be a sideshow, the real point, and you drove it home in six different ways, was that, of course, he wanted desperately to go to the Capitol and was irate when he didn't. Let's turn to some of the revelations from yesterday, the biggest ones, and I want to get people's reaction to them. So as you mentioned already, Congresswoman, this wealth of Secret Service material, not a replacement for the scandalously deleted texts, but quite a treasure trove that you made very good use of, including real bone-chilling kinds of accounts of what the marauders were planning to do and how prepared they were, their military gear and the like. So all those came out. It it was clear the FBI knew and the Secret Service knew that's going to be a separate potential issue scandal in and of itself. Do we think that the committee showed that Trump himself was aware of just how violent his supporters were planning to be by the morning of January 6th? My 
strong memory because I had to write about this at the time was at the last hearing and Congressman Lofner, please correct me if you think I miss a nuance here. But in the last hearing, it was brought home pretty strongly that the president was talking with one of his top aides, I believe that's Tony Arnato, White House Deputy Chief of Staff, actually on detail from the Secret Service. And that person let him know that there were weapons in the crowd. And Trump's reaction to the idea that there were people with weapons outside the corral where his speech was going to be that morning, his reaction was, take the magnetometers down, which they use to screen anybody coming in for weapons to make sure the president is not assassinated. And Trump's reaction was, they're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Now and he did it again during the speech. And the, last, the second part of that sentence was, they can march to the Capitol from here. Also, I'm sorry, but why is the Secret Service desperately keeping him away from the Capitol? So I'm going to just offer the Secret Service view. As I said, agents were calling me after the hearing and the morning before complaining about like this amazing intelligence failure, but also complaining that if there's a threat of a weapon, let me put it this way, there are law enforcement officer ceremonies that the president attends to celebrate and congratulate a group of law enforcement officers for any number of reasons. All of those officers sworn to faithfully carry that weapon and not use it for any ill purpose, all of their weapons are taken off of them when they come to that event. So how is it safe once you learn there's a Glock, a pistol, a man in a tree with a rifle, a guy who's detained by police hiding an assault rifle? How is it safe, outside the corral or not, to have so many armed people on federal property? A felony. We know that the White House was shot at from 750 yards with an assault rifle in 2011. So how is it that this little bike rack that you've set out a certain amount of territory is safe? Of course, the answer is no. They should have pulled the event, but that would have been impossible because this was part of the president's plan yeah. to assemble the mob and to send them off to attack the Capitol. I mean, this goes to this separate issue of, you know, the hearings were so fascinating and obviously their main significance, I think, is what they revealed with respect to Donald Trump and the danger he poses and continues to pose. But I think with respect to the FBI and the Secret Service and the Department of Homeland Security that had main functions to perform, this is such a singular indictment of them and I think Chris Ray's testimony before Congress is highly suspect in light of the, all of the hearings where he suggested this was sort of an intelligence failure and not being aware of things, and also claiming that the FBI internal rules prevented sort of learning more, which is not true. I mean, knowing the FBI internal rules is not true. To me, this is not an intelligence failure at all. This is an absence of will to respond. And I think there's politics involved. I think there's race involved. I and mean, this is my own opinion on this, but I think there's a variety of a constellation of things that go into why this happened. And I hate to put more on the administration's plate, but I do think that for the president and for Avril Haines and for Merrick Garland, you know, these agencies are now theirs. And a lot of these, certainly the leadership of the FBI is the same leadership. And so part of this is, shouldn't there be more accountability? 
at the very least, you know, I was trained under director Muller. And one of the things that he beat into you was when there was a problem, you had to figure out what happened. You had to be completely candid about what happened. And you had to have a plan that you made public as to how you were going to fix it. And then internally, he was big on auditing that plan. And there's so many instances, by the way, where the director did that right after, for instance, the Boston bombing. I still remember the night of, he told me to get and put out publicly what we knew internally about the suspects, because he said the press is going to be all over this. They have a right to know, and whatever it is, it is. So he didn't even know the answer at that point about how the FBI had handled it. But he was like, the public has a right to know, and we have to deal with that. And that's what I'm seeing missing. Well, there is some things missing. And as was said, I think by Mr. Aguilar at the hearing, some of the testimony received by witnesses from the Secret Service lack credibility based on the other evidence that we have received. And so the question is, among many questions, was this negligence or was it intentional? Were people participating in an attempt to overturn the government or were they merely not understanding the depth of the threat? Were they blind to what was happening because of their own political orientation? For example, wasn't in the hearing, but it'll be in the report. We saw emails from line officers, not decision makers in the Secret Service. You know, was it Antifa a day afterwards? I mean, Kevin McCarthy knew as it was happening. So it could be a mix of these things. A lot of the Secret Service agents are huge Trump supporters. And they may have been blinded to some extent by their political orientation, or it could be worse. We need to find out. It's remarkable. I wonder if we are going to be able to get to the bottom of it, especially if the House changes hands. And the Not fact- something that I accept as, as going to happen, let me point out. Right. right. <laughs> Objection noted and endorsed. But anyway, the fact, of course, that there's been at best sort of squirreliness and at worst misrepresentation of what the agencies know certainly is a bad odor to start out here. Just a quick follow-up question to you, Congresswoman. It seems pretty clear that Ornato developed a sudden case of I don't recall-itis when he spoke to the committee behind the scenes. And you had discussed the possibility of subpoenaing him again that didn't transpire? Is that still on the table? And if it isn't, why not? It is on the table. And honestly, it took Liz Cheney and I over the Labor Day weekend throwing a major hissy fit to the Department of Homeland Security and involving higher-up people to finally get the Secret Service to start providing information to us. That's why we got over a million documents. And then, of course, they dumped all this stuff on us But we did go through all of it and we found a lot of useful things. We wanted to get all of that under our belt uh, before we re-interview Mr. Ornato and Mr. Engel so that we know what there is to know, even though, you know, what would it take? I mean, it came out in the hearing. I didn't know we were going to admit this in public, but not only did congressional committees tell the Secret Service to keep all of their text messages, the Department of Justice told them the same thing. How damning was it that they would risk 
the criminal liability of erasing it? What was in, in there? So I think there's a lot of questions, not necessarily just for the committee, but for the Department of Justice to look at. Carol, I just want to turn back to you because you've really been the lead in breaking the story here with the Secret Service, et cetera. What's your you know, thoughts about where things go? Obviously, you won't reveal sources, of course, but I just want to give you a chance to comment because I think you've been out front more than anyone in the country. Well, I share the Congresswoman's burning question about what was motivating the Secret Service on a couple of different fronts? Because this is supposed to be a patriotic, apolitical organization. You know, the people elect them, we protect them. But what was steering the possibility that they would still plan to take Donald Trump to the Capitol while officers were being beaten with flagpoles and bear spray? Who was still keeping that flame alive and why? And rewinding, why did the chief information officer agree to wipe every single phone while he had in front of him and his boss had in front of him a request from a congressional committee for those records? Was that like, you know, I'm clueless and I don't know my job? Who was influencing that? Also, I have to say that one of the burning questions for me is how much Donald Trump cowed his agency versus people inside were trying to enable him. It strikes me that Tony Arnato may be a very nice person, but all the reporting that I've done about him has revealed the ways in which he enabled Donald Trump in the worst moments. The clearing of praying protesters at Lafayette Square because Donald Trump wanted a great photo op to show that he was still in control of the country amid George Floyd protests. Tony Arnato was at the center of that. Tony Arnato was at the center of the president getting to all sorts of events that were dangerous for the public that became super spreaders for COVID. We won't go down that road, but I, I want to understand that better. I hope there's another hearing where we get to see the testimony, Congresswoman, of those individuals now that you have all the records in hand. and. Some of the records you have in hand may not help your central and streamlined narrative about Donald Trump's central role in this riot, in fomenting it, in denying the election results, but could be really helpful to fixing an agency that has a really noble past, could be really helpful in making it stronger. Well, let me just say, I do think there are serious problems at the agency. And that's not to disparage many of the officers who perform bravely and honorably, and uh, we're grateful, but there is a problem over there, I mean, very clearly. We do have more questions for Mr. Ornato and Mr. Engel, and we will get them. And, you know, whatever we find out is what we find out. We're not trying to just find one thing out. But I will assert this I don't think the plot to overthrow the government was hatched by Tony Ornato. So there were a lot of people who were involved as tools of the president's plot. And the question is, how far did that extend into some of these agencies? One more quick thing to throw in the hopper. Mike Pence's staff, pretty sophisticated observers, remembered, feared the Secret Service, thought that if he were spirited away as they wanted to do, he'd be taken out of the action. But we're not positive of that. I'm, oh, please correct me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
I mean, there's conflicting testimony on that. And certainly the vice president told his chief that he did not want to get in the car. He did not want to leave the Capitol. We had concerns that they might spear him in a way, you know, sort of like President Bush on 9-11 across the country. So he couldn't get back. We never found evidence to that. I think the plan was to take him over to the vice president's residence after he was removed, which would allow him to return to the Capitol. Thank you for the correction. So glad you're here. But I have a question on that. What did, when Keith Kellogg relayed, National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, relayed a conversation he had with Tony Arnato and said, I know you guys, you're going to try to take him to Alaska, and said the Vice President wants to stay at the Capitol. What did Arnato or Kellogg relay, or what differences did they have in their account? There are conflicting accounts. And actually, we have some concerns about witness collusion that we intend, we can't really get to the bottom of all of it, but we expect the Department of Justice to thoroughly investigate that. He said that, and then other people said other things, and then he backtracked. So we need to get to the bottom of it. But I would say the bulk of what we've gotten was not taking him to Alaska. It was taking him over to the residence. And what was said was that the vice president didn't want the mob to see him leaving, that they had won. That's one explanation. He might also, and we haven't been able to talk to him about this, been concerned about not being president. It's clear that he wanted to go back into the Capitol and do the count. I was one of the tellers. I wanted to do the same thing. The speaker wanted to do that. So did Mitch McConnell. And then, of course, it became moot because very shortly after he refused to get into the car, they couldn't leave. They were completely surrounded and could not safely leave. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's time now for our sidebar feature in which we explain an important concept that figures in the news but isn't necessarily explained in the news. And today we are going to be talking about preliminary injunctions, which is a legal device that comes up quite a bit in Trump litigation and requests that a higher court temporarily freeze the operation of a ruling below while it considers the merits. And to explain it to us, we're really pleased to welcome Louis Black, a stand-up comedian and actor who is known for his sarcastic rants about history, politics, and religion. He was the host of Comedy Central's series, Louis Black's Root of All Evil, and he can often be seen on The Daily Show, delivering his signature comedy segment, Back in Black. Louis was featured in Pixar's film, Inside Out, as the voice of anger. Comedy Central voted him among the 100 greatest stand-up comedians of all time. So I give you Louis Black on preliminary injunctions. What is a preliminary injunction? Challengers to new laws often ask the court to keep the law in its previous state while they litigate whether the new law can go into effect. This sort of immediate relief before the full case is resolved is available through an equitable mechanism called a preliminary injunction. A preliminary injunction is a way for the court to give temporary relief based on an initial estimate of the strength of plaintiff's suit 
and a consideration of potential harms that will occur before factual disputes and legal arguments are fully resolved. An injunction is a court order that either compels or restrains a party's behavior. It is an extraordinary remedy, not commonly granted, generally reserved for use in cases where a defendant's actions will cause injustice or irreparable harm if not stopped. A preliminary injunction is simply an injunction granted early in a case so as to maintain the status quo while the court considers the merits of the plaintiff's claim. At the end of the case, depending on the outcome, it may either be lifted or made permanent. Generally, to secure a preliminary injunction, a party, usually the plaintiff, must convince the court that, one, she is likely to prevail on the merits of her claim after a full trial, two, she will suffer irreparable injury if such relief is not granted. Three, the threatened injury outweighs any damage the proposed injunction might cause the opposing party. And four, the balance of the equities and the public interest weigh in favor of granting the injunction. A good example of how preliminary injunctions work in practice comes in the current flurry of lawsuits challenging severe restrictions on abortion that states are enacting in the wake of the Supreme Court's overruling of Roe v. Wade. Because it takes far more time to litigate a challenge to a state law than to bring a child to term, challengers to the new laws will seek a preliminary injunction. Weighing the competing interests, a Wyoming state court judge recently enjoined the state from enforcing an abortion ban triggered by the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. The Wyoming judge sided with a woman's health clinic, an OBGYN, and a 22-week pregnant woman who argued that preliminary relief was warranted while the court decides whether the ban violates a Wyoming constitutional provision that guarantees individual choice in healthcare decision-making. For Talking Feds, I'm Lewis Black. Thank you very much, Lewis Black, for explaining preliminary injunctions. In addition to his many accomplishments as a comedian and actor, Lewis also has served as an American Civil Liberties Union ambassador for voting rights since 2013. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, Wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay, 
But what white burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine and More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More, where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's move to another area of revelation, friend, that actually you took the lead on, Congresswoman, and that is Roger Stone. So you, you called him to the carpet and made clear that the plan, him and Bannon had said that, you know, even before the election was over, that they were just going to declare victory. But you also emphasized his connections to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. So I just wanted to get anyone's thoughts, really, about where things now stand, because I've always thought of that as if there is a conspiracy to be charged here, there's a bridge between the marauders, the rioters, and Trump. And that bridge, I think, is occupied by Stone and Flynn and Giuliani and the Willard War Room gang. How developed or fuzzy is that picture now as the DOJ potentially picks it up? Well, uh, let me just say that Flynn, Stone, Bannon, they refused to talk to us. Flynn took the fifth, Stone took the fifth, Bannon blew us off and was convicted of criminal contempt. So you know, what we've had to use is what was in the public sphere, which included the Danish filmmakers' clips, right. uh, as well as his own social posts. I saw today that Stone was complaining about that. Well, he should come in and talk to us. You know, if we're wrong, tell us how we're wrong, because what he said was very clear. Now, we know from other witness testimony that the president asked Mark Meadows to call the night before Flynn and Stone who were at the Willard with the extremists. We know there were extensive ties between the extremists and both of those individuals. And, you know, it's very tough without being able to talk to them to get the details. But that's something I think that the Department of Justice is going to have more success at than we have because they can put people before a grand jury and make them talk in a way that the Congressional Committee cannot. Andrew, I heard you refer to this briefly yesterday, and I was wrapped, as I'm sure everyone was listening. So in your prosecutorial hat now, what would you recommend? And I know you have some doubts about the pace and aggressiveness of the department, but just with Weissman running the investigation, what would DOJ be doing immediately and what would be the game plan? Well, one of the things that you do is you identify people who you would want to have cooperate, and then you figure out how to flip them. Either they're going to be somebody like Cassidy Hutchinson, who's going to come in and actually just do their yep. duty, or they're going to do it because they're facing charges. The two people who, to me, would be right up on the chopping block of sort of 
key people to be focusing on are Mark Meadows and Corcoran. And, and Mark Meadows, again, it's amazing how, how obscure he stayed here. Sorry, go right. ahead. He is clearly getting good counsel. Former deputy attorney general. He yeah. is keeping his mouth shut, which is, you know, not something that you're seeing from others. And obviously that phone call that Congressman Lofgren talked about, it's like they didn't call about the weather. These are all people I'm very familiar with. They were all convicted in and and one ways or the other in connection with a Mueller investigation or charged in case of Bannon, now convicted. And so this is not exactly a reputable group that you would be thinking, who do I want to call for advice at the particular time that happened? But, you know, to get into that, I mean, you're not going to flip Bannon and Stone and Flynn, right? I mean, they've proved that. So those are not going to be people that you are going to flip or would be particularly credible on the stand, even if you manage to flip them. They're so damaged at this point. So Mark Meadows, if you're his lawyer, you basically have to build a strong case and then talk to him about why he needs to come in. And then the issue is going to be immunity versus taking a plea. His role could be so significant, not just in January, the sort of so-called January 6th events, but also in Mar-a-Lago that you really want to try and build that. With Corcoran, it's a little easier because he is being, I think, set up as the fall guy on this. And so I actually think, and this is Carol, don't respond, but I actually think some of the leaks that we're seeing are in some ways from him because you could see Christina Bob basically throwing Corcoran under the bus and Corcoran's basically got the hot potato to sort of say, hey, it wasn't me. Now, he may actually have some criminal exposure, but that's the kind of person that you either make a case or that you can really imagine immunizing because there will be consequences to him if he does have liability, at least professionally. I want to say something because there are some issues relating to other people who have substantial criminal exposure based on evidence that we have not disclosed for a variety of reasons because we know the Department of Justice already has this stuff. Could you be more specific? No. <laughs> <laughs> we, won't, we won't tell. Right. So I'll just tell you there's plenty of levers out there. And I hope they are used. So I'll just say that. Wow. All right. Well, that's the biggest surprise since the October surprise yesterday, the subpoena at the end. And I'd like to spend a few minutes more mindful, Congresswoman, that you've got only about five minutes to go. Let me just say the argument for accountability was very well made, but also strongly by contrast. I thought the procession of people taking the fifth really worked well. Let me serve up the question to you first, Congresswoman. I have to assume that the committee made the gesture not really being confident that Trump will ever be in front of them and raise his right hand. Yes. And if that's so, what's the overall thinking? Actually, we would like to have him come in. Sure. We do think that there's some questions that only he can answer. A lot of the witnesses who claimed executive privilege or attorney-client privilege, he doesn't have those privileges. He just come in and tell us what he knows. It is October. Realistically, we don't have time for a year-long court fight, but he has a responsibility, which he's failed to discharge in so many ways as president, but he has a responsibility to be accountable for his actions. We have given him that official opportunity 
to come in and for once take some responsibility. Can I ask a follow-up question? So I agree with what you all did, and I think it's commendable. And I've I've always called on that, which is whether it's a private citizen or particularly a, a someone who is a public servant or a former public servant, that they owe that, as we all do, to testify subject to the Fifth Amendment. But is there a reason that it, you waited to this point to do it so that if there were going to needed to be litigation, it could have happened in a way that potentially at least could have been more successful in forcing him to give answers that we're entitled to? Well, I'll say we, I think we were prepared to do it before the hearing was postponed because of the hurricane, but he is the major figure in this misconduct and you want to put your information together before you put your subpoena out. That's what prosecutors do. We're not prosecutors, but that's what the committee did. And in all honesty, given his track record, I mean, Congress asked for his financial records, was it five years ago? Uh, And they're just getting it now. So if it had been June or if it had been October, if it's litigation, it's not going to be done anytime soon. So this really has to call on him to take some responsibility. That would be a departure from his past practices. But we've outlined the case. If he thinks somehow we've got it wrong and he sent some incoherent screed this morning, he ought to come in and uh, let us know if we've made an error. That This is his opportunity. Carol and Andrew, will you forgive me? I'm going to ask one more question of the congresswoman, then she has to go. And I'll, I want to double back to the subpoena with you two. Congresswoman, you just mentioned your knowledge of some of the things the department knows that may be pretty inculpatory. I'm wondering now, as you move into an endgame, if the committee has a sort of view of how it's going to interact with and cooperate with the Department of Justice and what that kind of relationship will be looking like. We have formed a committee. The chairman appointed a committee, subcommittee, of the lawyers who are on the committee to go through with our investigative staff the things they've uncovered that they think could potentially be criminal referrals. We haven't finished that yet. We will do that as soon as we can accomplish it. We will provide information, I'm sure, to substantiate the recommendations. I think, uh, and we haven't worked this out yet, but just my personal thinking, sometimes there's in a criminal investigation There may be times when you might want to delay the release publicly of information so as not to jeopardize. So, I mean, we want to be mindful of that. But in the end, I mean, this is a congressional committee. The intent is that what we have compiled will be made available to the public. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. All right. So, guys, can we take five minutes to double back now on the subpoena? I do think the betting odds, and it would certainly be my side of the handicapping, is that Trump won't testify. So what are your thoughts about the value of the gesture, and how do you see it playing out? Do you anticipate a big court battle, or does the committee, having made its point, just let it lie and note it in the report without ginning up a big constitutional court fight? If the House flips, this is dead. So I think it will have an effect with respect to the report writing as to 
not appearing, not getting contrary evidence. He had an opportunity and actually, you know, a legal obligation, absent and a privilege to testify. So I think it has that function. But the timing of this is such that, I mean, as the congresswoman, I thought was very candid about that this is really an effect. It is a request at this point. I really thought that the bombshell from today, though, from this was when we were talking about Corcoran, which I thought it was very interesting that it was came up in that connection where she interrupted me, thankfully, to say that she's aware of a lot of criminal leverage. Because, Harry, you and I know that is the stock and trade for what we do, is identifying who is the potential cooperator and how do you build a case to flip them. It feels impolite because she's left, but... That was news, wasn't it, Carol? Uh, yes. <laughs> exactly. And then the second thing that was news, which I had not heard, which is that there's this subcommittee mm-hmm. that has been formed of the lawyers to at least present to the committee the potential criminal referrals. And to me, those were obviously speaking hand in hand. And that they're very focused on this idea, which I have been, which is you don't necessarily want to make that all public. If you're trying to help the Department of Justice reach accountability, making this all public and thus the so-called bad guys know how to puddle jump and what evidence is out there is not a good thing for the department. And they're very focused on that. So I just thought all in all, I mean, I've always been impressed with the Congresswoman and the committee, but it's really great to see just how smart they're being about their evidence and the tools that it can create for the department. Carol, final thoughts? Yes, that was news. I immediately went to my phone and Andrew, being a good observer, noticed that I was frantically typing to some colleagues and that also sources with one hand while trying to listen to you, Harry, and your questions. Because and noting that it came in the Talking Feds podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if, if you don't release right away, yes. <laughs> okay. But um, I just found that really compelling. And I think, yes, smart. But gosh, this reveals part of why I asked the question earlier. They have a trove of material. Just speaking of Secret Service, one of my areas, right? They have a million records. We saw like seven of them. So there's a lot of stuff that's not going to the heart of what did Trump know and when did he know it that could be really revelatory and important. I don't know that those one million documents are the treasure hunt pile, but I know the committee has a lot of material and she just let on to a key piece of it. My final word is just echoing Andrew's adjective, smart. We are out of time in what's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, Andrew Weissman, and Carol Lennig. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. In just the last few days, we've posted a conversation with New York Times Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Charlie Savage 
about the new reporting on decades of secret Office of Legal Counsel war powers memos, and one with Professor Charles Kupchin about how the war in Ukraine has changed the global power landscape. And your support will help keep talking feds nearly commercial free in contrast to almost all comparable podcasts, which we do to maintain the best listening experience for all. So go to patreon.com slash talking feds and see if you might like to become one of our supporters. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com slash contact, whether it's for talking five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Dawn Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to the great comedian and satirist Louis Black for explaining preliminary injunctions. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.